0: Good evening everyone and congratulations for making it here in a relatively dry state my name is michael suarez as many of you know i'm the director of rare book school and i'd like to begin by thanking uh, the albert and shirley small special collections library and the harrison institute for their gracious hospitality in enabling us to use this space for this our third in the summer lecture series. I don't like to be made fun of. (laughs) But Sharon made me the object of derision. (laughs) And it wasn't her fault, it was my own. Uh, First a trickle, and then eventually a steady stream of people in New York uh, contacted me about this uh, guest lecturer in Arthur Schwartz's book course at NYU. Sharon Mintz was wowing them in New York, near the Arch. And um, I never heard of Sharon, not being in the Judaica world myself. And um, I had spent a lot of time working with a guy named Emil Shriver, whose name may be known to some of you because he's the curator of the Bibliotheca Rosenthalia in Amsterdam. And uh, we were having a phone conversation and I said, so, Emil, This mince chick, (laughs) is she the real deal? And a torrent of derision was heaped upon my head. I didn't ask the question that way, I promise you. And he just said, what are you kidding? What are you kidding? This, This is one of the most learned people in the world about not only the history of Jewish manuscripts but also in the world of early printed Jewish books. And, and he, he told me in almost no uncertain terms that he thought I was a complete dunce for, for even tendering the question. Um, and then finally, you know, I looked up her credentials because I thought, wow, this would be a great speaker for Rare Book School. And, and I was a dunce for tendering the question. Uh, Sharon is a senior consultant for Judaica and Hebraica at Sotheby's in New York and has been doing that job since 1994. She's been the curator of Jewish art at the Library of the Jewish Theological seminary for more than 25 years. She specializes in the fields of uh, illuminated Hebrew manuscripts and rare printed books. She has curated more than 40 exhibitions in her career and co-authored 11 published exhibition catalogs. The book of hers that I know the best is her 2005 volume, Printing the Talmud which is a revelation, not just for Judaic studies, but for learning about printing history. Um, While consulting for Sotheby's Judaica department, she helped curate and appraise uh, the Valmadana collection, valued at a mere $40 million. 13,000 printed books and manuscripts printed in Hebrew, Yiddish, Ladino, works from throughout the world, especially Italy, covering more than a millennium in their range. The greatest collection of Judaic and private hands ever, rivaling some of the great institutional collections. Graham Pollard was very fond of saying, the great librarian at the Bodleian Library, you know nothing about books until you've really looked at 5,000 real books. Sharon Mintz has looked at 50,000 real books. I'm a little bit at sea as to what her title is today. (laughs) And I ask you to join me in welcoming Sharon Mintz.
1: Thank you, Michael. I don't think I've blushed this much during an introduction in a long while. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Envisioning Esther. In the 21st century, the world is moving inexorably from codex to tablet. And of course, by tablet, I mean the electronic version. We are experiencing a sea change as seismic as the 3rd century shift from scroll to codex. And some of you may know that even as the world moves to a new electronic format for accessing the written word, there's an ongoing phenomenon in Jewish culture that encourages and in fact even legislates the obligation to read biblical texts in Hebrew from a scroll on a regular basis, as many as three times a week if you don't count holidays, in which case it could be more. The most common scroll associated with Judaism is the Torah scroll and uh, it comprises the text of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and um, a Torah scroll is meticulously handwritten on sometimes between 40 to 60 sheets of parchment, which are then sewn together and mounted on two wooden staves, as you see here. The Torah scroll that you're looking at here uh, is from Poland. It dates from the second half of the 15th century. It's one of the earliest uh, uh, Ashkenazi, sort of northern European Torah scrolls that we know of, and for those of you who have good eyes and can read the text, it's open to chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, and this is some text on the the Ten Commandments. Um, But today, I would like to examine another scroll that continues to be produced and utilized by members of the Jewish community, namely the Esther Scroll. And Esther scrolls comprise the text of the Biblical Book of Esther, and they're known in Hebrew as a Megillah or Megillat Esther, plural would be Megillot. Uh, and the Book of Esther recounts the salvation of the Jews of the Persian Empire over their archenemy, Haman, some 2,500 years ago. The story unfolds as one part palace intrigue and one part court romance. And these scrolls are essential for the annual celebration of the Jewish festival of Purim, which commemorates that same delivery of the Jews of the Persian Empire, and this is a holiday that takes place in the spring, uh, exactly one month before Passover, if you're ever wondering when Purim is. Um, For more than two millennia, on the holiday of Purim, Jews have gathered in the synagogue to hear the story of Esther. That's the wrong direction. You only make that mistake once, hopefully. Uh, However, in order to fulfill this ritual obligation, the biblical book of Esther must be read specifically from a handwritten scroll. And according to rabbinic dictum, it is required that the scroll be handwritten in ink on parchment created from the skin of a kosher animal, and it usually consists of several pieces of parchment that are sewn together with sinew, And the scroll itself is then rolled into a single cylinder, or sometimes around one roller, and frequently a wooden or a silver case is made to protect the scroll, as you see here. And the scroll is fitted inside a roller, so this is onto a roller inside a case, and this is a silver filigree case from Venice from the 18th century. And Esther scrolls differ from Torah scrolls, Uh, which are the most significant uh, uh, scroll in the Jewish tradition in several crucial ways. Torah scrolls are significantly larger, um, uh, almost always, actually. There's some miniature scrolls running around the place, but those are unusual. Usually Torah scrolls are about this big. And um, they're rolled onto two staves. And most notably, uh, for the purposes of my talk tonight, it's forbidden to add even one extra letter to a Torah scroll. You add one extra aleph, and the whole thing is rendered unfit for ritual use, and certainly no extra decoration can be added to a Torah scroll as well. However, as we'll see, with regards to Esther scrolls, these same prohibitions don't necessarily uh, exist. And one reason, given for the more permissive attitude towards the decoration of Esther scrolls, is that the name of God does not appear once throughout the entire text of the Book of Esther. And as a result, um, according to rabbinic law, an Esther scroll possesses one degree less holiness than a Torah scroll. So Torah scrolls up here, Esther scrolls down there, Uh, and then come codices. And and actually, Jewish law really legislates all kinds of things, even about codices. For example, when you have a, a book of a Bible and a book of a prayer book, the Bible goes on top, prayer book goes on bottom, law books follow that. Everything is very hierarchical. So it was therefore deemed acceptable by most rabbis to add illustrations to the text of an Esther scroll, and such decorated scrolls are fit for ritual use on the holiday of pearl. Most extant Esther scrolls are undecorated, however, uh, like the one that you see here today, uh, and in fact, I brought for you my son's Esther scroll, uh, which is undecorated, and um, it's sitting up there in front. Uh, and you can come and take a look at it. I thought, you know, why not? He wasn't home anyhow. And he wouldn't <laughs> like, <laughs> He's not using it for another couple of months on the holiday program. And uh, it was a very special gift to him from my father. But it's up there on parchment. I thought it might be interesting for you to actually see what a real life, you know, contemporary 21st century Esther scroll looks like. Um, But today I want to talk about a very special group of scrolls, and namely those with decoration and illustration. And despite the tacit rabbinical acceptance of illustrated Esther scrolls, dated and decorated scrolls are extant from only the second half of the 16th century and onwards. And what you're looking at is an image of the very first known complete Esther scroll to include decoration. And it was produced in 1564, And it has a colophon, which is actually kind of unusual. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, And the colophon in this rondelle tells us very specifically who wrote it and when and where. And um, it was copied, and this is even more unusual, by a female scribe. And her name is Stelina. And she says that she is the daughter of the honorary officer, kind of an officer of the community, Menachem, the son of the Rosh Kitzin, kind of like the chief head honcho, uh, Yucatiel, in the city of Venice. And then she dates it both uh, to the um, Gregorian calendar and then to the, um, to the Hebrew calendar as well. And uh, according, sort of according to traditional Jewish law, women are not authorized to serve as scribes and create ritual objects uh, such as Torah scrolls. However, the rabbinic standpoint is less definite as to whether women may write Esther scrolls, and that has to do with the obligations of the holiday and the fact that it does have a different degree of holiness than Torah scrolls and, and something that's much more complicated. To, to, you don't want to hear about that. You can ask me later if you want. <laughs> um, but Stelina was one of only three or four woman, women known to have written uh, Esther scrolls prior to the 20th century. And she was clearly a wealthy and educated woman whom we cannot exactly pin down to his, his specific historical personality. And I want to tell you, it wasn't for lack of trying on my part. Um, you know, you'd know, you think a woman in the Jewish community of Venice in the 16th century, how hard could it be? The cemetery is still extant. There are written records. No, nothing. Um, so, and it was even more frustrating because there's actually a coat of arms over here. Um, And um, it's partially abraded, but it looks like there's a a crown and maybe two fish over here. Uh, And this might be the coat of arms of the Castelfranco family, if in fact those are fish. The crown looks like it's actually still there. And uh, a word about coats of arms. While the Jews of Italy were not granted formal coats of arms by the ruling authorities, Jewish families adopted the custom which was then in use, among Italian nobility, and created their own insignias. And affluent Italian Jews used these informal family emblems on personal items, as well as on the Judaica that they commissioned, such as marriage contracts, uh, synagogue textiles, silver ceremonial objects of Judaica, book bindings, and, as we see here, Esther scrolls. Um, so you so know a little bit about where and when she lived, but we don't know, like I haven't been able to actually find her. The artistic scheme seen on this scroll is a format that will become standard. Uh, the text is set between ornamental arcades. You can kind of see here, and um, there's floral and geometric and architectural elements that sort of all employed to decorate this scroll. And the artistic vocabulary reflects the current Italian interest in Greco-Roman imagery. So one has masks and urns and caryatids, uh, Right, these. Female architectural uh, supports, um, and they all relate directly to the artistic trends that were popular in the 16th century. And I'd like to point out to you one interesting thing, which is the saturns that you see here. Right? This is actually they they, they uh, denote very raunchy imagery in the 16th century, sort of lust and seduction. And it's it's kind of an interesting, very risque image to put on a ceremonial object used in the synagogue and we do see nudes on the title pages of Hebrew books and nudes in Esther scrolls Um, but I thought that these uh, satyrs were actually even one level more interesting. We don't know actually who decorated the scroll. As Stelina says that she wrote it, she doesn't say who decorated it. Um, We don't know the artist's identity, if it was a man or a woman, if it was a Jew or a Christian. Um, We don't know who was making the artistic choices here. But we do know that it's interesting that we're going to see time and again that the text is set within the arcade. So this sort of sets the standards going forward. Scholars are uncertain as to the reason for the late appearance of decorated Esther scrolls in the field of Jewish art. And it's worthwhile to note, however, that even undecorated scrolls cannot be securely dated before the late 15th century. And the earliest dated but undecorated scroll that I know of is in the library in Parma, great library in Parma, library, and it was written by the famed scribe Abraham Farisal, Jewish scribe, and it's dated 1483, Tafmim Gimel in Hebrew. Um, and, you know, 1483 is very late for a ritual object that, you know, we should have from earlier periods. There are a group of scrolls. There's one in the Library of Congress that might be sort of 14th, 15th century, but it's undated. There's one out in Skirball that might be early. There may be like or 15, but none of them are actually dated, so it's it's very intriguing that there's just nothing earlier. One of the reasons that Esther scrolls are not especially easy to date or localize is the lack of scribal inscriptions, colophons, on the vast majority of Megillot, which might have provided us with this valuable information as to where and when they were produced. And the lack of inscriptions is attributed, I think, on the most part, of on the reluctance of some rabbis to allow for extra text. So as I mentioned to you earlier, there's this dichotomy. Torah scrolls, not one extra level. Esther scrolls, maybe. You know, you make blessings before and after you read the Esther scroll on the of Purim. It would be handy to have those blessings right there on the scroll when you're about to start reading it. Um, Some rabbis allowed it and some forbid it. Um, The ones that allowed it, you know, sort of leaves us room for scribes to write their own information about where and when the scroll was written. But when you were living in a locale or you were following the dictum of a rabbi that forbade it, forbid it um, you would therefore not have anything to write extra on your scroll. So that's why you know, the lack of this kind of paratext sort of hampers the research. According to the most minimal information gleaned from the extant inscriptions, megillot were most frequently commissioned and owned privately, and traditionally they were not communal or synagogue property. Of course, that may also be a reflection of what's come down to us. You know, we've received these private ones that have been handed down in families. We just haven't received the communal ones. Hard to say. Today, as we explore the earliest examples of the art of Esther Scrolls, you will certainly notice that no one unique style of art emerges. Rather, we find that the Jews adapted and adapted the art and the prevalent artistic style of the host country. And they used it to create uh, the Esther scrolls and consequently the style of Esther scrolls varies widely from country to country and from period to period so an Esther scroll done in Italy in the 16th century is not going to look a thing like one done in Baghdad in the 19th century and that kind of makes sense. Um, so uh, there are only two examples of decorated uh, scrolls known from the 16th century. The one that you see here, uh, which is Stellina's, and um, an, engraved, uh, an Esther scroll with engraved borders that was created in Italy circa 1570. This is a very interesting scroll. Um, The exquisite copperplate borders used for this scroll were created by Andrea Morelli, a printmaker and a book illustrator who was active in Rome between 1567 and 1572. And little is known about his career or his oeuvre. Um, From the current scholarship, uh, scholars have identified about four examples of his artistic prints, including a coronation of the Virgin, and a print commemorating the papal visit to Venice in 1572. And what he's most interesting to us is for his book illustration, because he uh, created a series of engraved decorative frames for a calligraphic alphabet designed by Giovanni Francesco Cresci. And Cresci was one of the most famous Italian calligraphers of the 16th century, and published this alphabet, Ah, this is another example. We'll go back and see these a little bit more. But this is, uh, he published his alphabet along with Morelli's frames as part of his scribal manual, Il Perfetto Scrittore, The Perfect Scribe, which was published in Rome in 1570. And you see the title page of this publication here on the screen. And the scholar, From Framjavec's research, has revealed to us that the decorative frames that Morelli created for Cresci's alphabet, and here you see the frame for the letter H, were reused. Okay, look carefully at the sides here. Ah, sorry, go back. Okay, so were reused uh, to adorn borders of an ester scroll, right? So that was the H frame over here. And here you have the S frame. And here you have the very same one being used. Uh, in this uh, Esther scroll. There are three extant uh, Esther scrolls decorated with this border design, two in public collections. One is in the British Library, Uh, the other one is in Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, and one in a private collection, uh, that of uh, David Jesselson in Zurich. And in addition, there was one more published in the Yudisha Lexicon, which was a Uh, encyclopedic uh, publication uh, in uh, Berlin. that was published in Berlin in 1930, and that was not listed with the collection and has been lost in the war. So we know of at least four times that this border design was used uh, to adorn the borders of Esther scrolls. You're looking right now at the um, example from the Hebrew Union College Cincinnati um, scroll. And the borders, fascinating as they are, bear absolutely no relationship to the Esther narrative. And it would seem that an enterprising printer borrowed or bought these border plates and engraved several parchment sheets, leaving space at the center for scribes to handwrite the Esther in. And it might have been a printer in Rome, but not necessarily, because Rome didn't have very much Hebrew printing going on in the 16th century. There were eight books printed there between 1545 and 1548, and there were another three biblical books printed between 1578 and 1580, and then nothing again till 1657. So that's not very much in the way of Hebrew printing. And um, some of you may may sort of be thinking, yeah, because they burnt the Talmud in Rome in 1553, and that kind of put a damper on Hebrew printers, uh, <laughs> you know. And the audience there, actually, you know, they also burnt the Talmud in Venice uh, in the same year. But for whatever reason, Venice continued to remain a center of Hebrew printing. And in fact, there was a second edition of Cresci's uh, alphabet printed in Venice um, in 1575 without the Morelli's plates at the end. And so perhaps somehow these plates sort of migrated to Venice. Hebrew printer there took the, um, the borders and used those for this Esther scroll. And, and another printer reprinted the second edition of this alphabetic book. We, we, we don't know. The advantage of engraved borders and using them on Esther scrolls, is by using them, the scribe significantly decreases the time it might take him to turn out a beautiful scroll. And this of course translates into a reduction in the cost and you could have more buyers and move more quickly. And this is the very first example of an Esther scroll with printed border. And it's important to note that no Esther scroll from the 16th century contains figures or narrative scenes related to the biblical story. This transition from decorated Esther scroll to illustrated Esther scroll did not occur until the early 17th century, uh, with three scrolls that were written and illustrated in Ferrara by a man named Moses ben Abraham Pescarol, and you're seeing one of those three here. And to better understand the illustrations which I'm going to talk about in this pioneering scroll, I wanted to briefly review the plot of the Book of Esther. Unless all of you know it, I was going to take like a little poll. Okay, fine. So, I, you know, I, you know I, okay, then I'm going to review. For, give me two seconds. The Book of Esther is set in the capital of Shushan, Susa, under the rule of the Persian king Aswarius, or in Hebrew, Ahasuerus. As the story begins with a royal feast, during which the king orders his queen, Vashti, to display herself before his guests, and she refuses, and he sends her away. And although not specifically recorded in the text, rabbinic commentaries propose that in fact Vashti was executed for her disobedience. And over here, uh, you see, at the, sort of toward the beginning of the scroll, Vashti is sitting here uh, at her banquet. She's got a separate banquet going, and she's in an elaborate costume and sort of coiffed and, and bejeweled. And um, at left, the king is uh, seated, and he's asking his advisors to please. Uh, uh, have Vashti brought before him. and It's this unheeded request which sets the story in motion. Achashverosh regrets his rash decision to send Vashti away and at the behest of his advisors hold a beauty pageant to select a new bride. Um, we called it a beauty pageant going up, you know, sort of had Esther's pageant, but uh, in fact actually he has one woman, a new woman every night for the next three and a half years. So it's a little bit more than a beauty pageant. Um, of all the maidens from across the bath they never teach you this in grade school. <laughs> certainly not in the Jewish ones, of all the maidens from across the vast Persian Empire, Esther, a beautiful Jewish girl, is chosen as queen, and she conceals her Jewish heritage at the request of her uncle and guardian, Mordechai, who was a member of the king's court. Soon after, Mordechai discovers that two of the king's courtiers, Biktan and Teresh, were conspiring to assassinate Asuarius, the king, and uh, his role, Mordechai's role, in thwarting this plot is recorded in the king's chronicles. Meanwhile, Mordecai incurs the wrath of Haman, the Grand Vizier, by refusing to bow down to him. And consequently, Haman sets out to destroy the Jews, and he casts lots in order to determine the most auspicious date on which to enact his scheme. And it is this lottery that lends the name to the holiday of Purim, because Pur literally means lots. One evening, the king, unable to sleep, asks that his book of Chronicles be read to him and discovers that he has actually never rewarded Mordechai for saving his life. And at that very moment, who should knock on the door but Haman, uh, who appears before Ahasuerus to ask him uh, to, to, the, to, to um, he wants to hang uh, 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 Mordechai. He's kind of angry with Mordechai for not bowing down. So uh, as, as Haman walks in, Ahasuerus asks him how a man who has served the king should be honored honored and mistakenly believing that uh, that, that's, that, that Asuarius is referring to, to Haman, to himself, he responds that such a man should be dressed in royal attire and paraded publicly through the streets on the king's horse. And um, to Haman's shock, he's actually instructed to honor his nemesis Mordechai by dressing him in royal garb and leading him through the streets of Shushan on horseback. And here you see actually Haman bringing the royal clothing to Mordechai, who is wearing sackcloth, because he's in mourning about about the decree to destroy the Jewish people. And here, Haman is leading Mordechai on horseback through the streets. Um, And this is a scene often known as the Triumph of Mordechai in classic art. At the banquet that Esther prepares for the king and Haman the next day, Esther reveals their Jewish identity and points to Haman as the villain who intends to destroy her and the Jewish people. And um, let's see. Yes, and uh, you can see here this is the feast, and uh, the scene before that is Haman being hurried to the feast that Esther has prepared, and um, the king orders Haman to be hanged on the gallows uh, that he had prepared for Mordecai. While the Jews are permitted to defend themselves against the attacks uh, planned on them, and celebrations ensue, and a new holiday is born, etc. Um, Moses Pescaro, the scribe and artist of this scroll, lived in Ferrara and produced three illustrated scrolls. Two are dated 1616, well, one is dated 1616 and the other one is dated 1618. The third one is undated, and you're looking at the 1616 scroll, which is now housed in the National Library uh, in Israel, and the other is in the Rylands Library, Manchester. And the third is in the private collection of Bill Gross in Tel Aviv. And I've actually brought a facsimile of of the National Library scroll here. I thought it would be fun for you to be able to take a look at it uh, later. And this is the very first known Esther scroll to contain a series of illustrations documenting the very dramatic events of the Esther story as they unfold. A Hebrew inscription at the front of the scroll, which you'll actually be able to see over there, informs us that the scroll was owned by Mordechai, the son of Elijah, the Levite of Bricello. But we cannot determine if he was the original owner or how the idea of the very first illustrated scroll originated. And the genesis of this scroll is really swathed in mystery and waiting for a good doctoral dissertation. Um, from the early 17th century beginning of these illustrated scrolls in northern Italy, the custom of illustrating Esther's scrolls spread across Europe to Amsterdam, Germany, Bohemia, France, and later in the 19th century to the Ottoman Empire, North Africa, Iraq, and Iran. And Amsterdam is the very first place we find illustrative scrolls after Italy. Uh, it was a leading center of migila production in the 17th and 18th century. And I might, if I slip and use the word migila instead of it, Esther scroll, just, you know, sort of substitute. know that I'm talking about the same thing. Um, This Esther scroll, with an elaborately engraved border design, is the work of a renowned Jewish scribe artist by the name of Shalom d'Italia. And Shalom was born in Italy, as his name suggests, specifically in the town of Mantua. And with the Austrian invasion of Mantua in 1630, Jews were forced from the city and it is believed that Schoen spent some time in Venice before proceeding to Amsterdam. As an artist born to a family of printers, it's not really surprising that Schoen began to craft splendidly uh, decorated uh, migillots Esther scrolls. And Schoen produced um, scrolls both with engraved borders, uh, which you see here, and manuscript borders that he did by hand. So he's, doing, he's sort of able to do both uh, quite, quite well. And this uh, Esther scroll that you see dates to 1641, and it's a superb example of his printed work. It's mounted on a contemporary ivory roller uh, with silk backing. Uh, Often, uh, scrolls from Amsterdam sort of have back for the first membrane, the first sheet of parchment, have silk on the back of them, and this sort of protects the opening of the scroll, keep it from getting dirty, and sort of acts as a barrier to the outside, when you don't have sort of other cases, like a silver or metal case. And You see here that he's enclosed the text in highly decorative, monumental arches, and positioned the entire cast of the poem's story in niches between the portals. And here this is uh, King Ahasuerus here, and uh, Queen Vashti over here. Uh, And um, uh, a series of miniature landscapes is set beneath the figures. And he continues this on other scrolls that he's done. brought a little bit of a blow up for you to see. There's a little bit of a seascape here, and um, there's kind of a hunt scene, and uh, some of them have windmills in them in uh, other scrolls, very evocative of the Dutch, Dutch landscape to kind of tell what country he's working in. In addition, on the opening panel, Sean has left space for the blessings and a plaque for perhaps a dedication, and maybe both were used for the blessings. Again, because this is a printed border, there are a couple of copies around. Not too many; it's pretty rare. And I have seen them with dedications uh, and with, you know, and with blessings written in over there. Kind of just depends on who owned the scroll and what they did with it. Um, he's also signed his name, Salem Italia, sculpted it, over here, right into the plate. And Sean's work exerted considerable influence over the history of Esther's scroll decoration and illustration because. His borders, his printed borders, circulated throughout Western Europe and were frequently copied by other artists, both in manuscript and in printed format. Despite the difficulty of printing on parchment, uh, this practice, which was uh, began in the 16th century, uh, witnessed a sizable surge in the 17th and 18th century. And you needed to print onto parchment, I'll remind you, because in order to be fit for ritual use, the scroll had to be written on parchment. So you could, you know, all of these scrolls, the ones with printed borders and one with manuscripts and hand colored borders, are all printed on parchment and then handwritten afterwards. That's the that's scheme here. Yeah. This is another example of a late 17th century Esther scroll from northern Italy, potentially from Venice as well. Again, uh, there's, no, there's no colophon to tell us where and when it was written. Um, but uh, the design and, um, and certain elements uh, sort of lead us to believe that it's late, late 17th century, maybe uh, 1680s uh, in that vicinity. And it has an engraved and, and hand-colored border. So first it was engraved, then someone hand-colored it, and then someone else, or maybe the same person, wrote in the text in two columns here. The borders fare a little bit better, I must say, than the condition of the text. Um, often when you have scrolls you're going to see that you see interior pictures you never see the opening because the opening is always in worse condition uh, but here I wanted to give you a sense of what it looked like from the beginning um, so, so here you have scenes of the Esther story this is uh, Asueris' banquet up here, the men sort of circled around the king who seated it in the middle and Vashti, his, his queen's banquet over here below and um, the scroll opens with uh, an empty oval over here. Likely intended for a family coat of arms. is actually too small to be used for blessings. This scroll measures about, I'd say, six, seven inches high. It's, it's, it's not very large. And so, um, you know, that, that space actually wouldn't be large enough for blessings. And what's kind of interesting is that um, there are four animals placed here uh, around the perimeter. Uh, a leopard and an eagle and a lion and a deer. Right? One, two, three, four. And... These animals are a reference to the passage in an ethical treatise known as Perkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, that counsels Jews to be as bold as a leopard, light as an eagle, swift as a deer, and strong as a lion to do the will of God. And there doesn't appear to be a direct connection between um, this sort of mandate or this sort of advice and the story of Purim, or the Esther story. And the artist may have chosen to include these iconic animals as a visual reminder that one must perform the commandment of reading the the scroll, with alacrity. It's it's not really clear 100 um, percent why these are there. And I thought I'd bring you a little bit more, so you could see. This is this is it's a small scroll, so these images are, are quite small. They were engraved. You know, each one is is, is about this big. So this blown up, and it, it, it's it's not fine art. Right? It's sort of foggy, um, but it, it's wonderful wonderful imagery at um, at top right here. Uh, Ahasuerus is telling Haman that he must go out and lead Haman on horseback and a, Haman must lead excuse me, Mordechai on horseback through the streets so and you see that happening here and uh, below that there's a banquet scene this is a banquet that Esther prepares and Haman's uh, plot is revealed um, Haman throws him, himself down by begging for mercy the king goes out to the gardens to cool off um, uh, but he actually comes back and finds Uh, Haman, sort of it says, lying on the bed next to Esther. So he says, you're seducing the queen while I'm still here, you know, you're you're done for. And so Haman is hanged over here. Esther pleads that Haman's decree be rescinded. um, And uh, in fact, scribes are called to write a new decree. And then uh, the decree is sent out throughout the Persian Empire. And so the, the, the artist of this scroll, and again, we don't know who engraved these plates. We don't know if it's a Christian. We don't know if it's a Jew. It's unclear. Um, it's packing a lot of narrative into what's a relatively small scroll. In the 18th century, the center of Hebrew printing shifts from Italy to Amsterdam, and by 1700, another Esther scroll with elaborately engraved borders is produced. And this design proves to be very popular, and it's reprinted um, many times, uh, with minor changes over the course of several decades in the 18th century. And the identity, again, of the engraver is unknown. And until about 15 years ago, the exact location of the production of the Borders uh, and the scroll itself was unknown, uh, most scholars, including myself, I had suspected that the borders were printed in Amsterdam because Amsterdam at that point had the technical know-how, had the printing houses, several printing houses that were dealing with Hebrew books, uh, to be able to be able to know how to print on parchment. And it also had the monetary backing. Parchment was a very expensive medium to print on. You messed it up. You were you know paper was expensive. Parchment was exponentially more expensive, and um, so you had to have some serious financial backing to undertake this. And. The problem was that these scrolls were distributed widely throughout Europe, so the very few of them that had Colophons, scribal colophons, that even included a place name. So the that had to have a colophon, the colophon had to have a place name, it presented conflicting evidence of where you know, the scribe could have been in, in Berlin uh, or sitting in a prison somewhere in Poland, which is where one of them actually was written, uh, that's now in the JTS library. Um, but it, you know could have been anywhere, even when the actual uh, uh, borders were printed in Amsterdam. Uh, this debate, the scholarly debate, was settled in a very interesting fashion, about 15 years ago, because a scroll came up for sale at auction. And it was different from all the others because this scroll happened to be printed on paper. don't know why anyone would try to print it on paper. You can't use it ritually. But it was really helpful to us because one scholar dealing with it had the really clever idea to take the watermark. Absolutely, date the paper. And uh, the watermark actually was to a Dutch printing house, and so that sort of settled it conclusively that these were uh, scrolls being produced in, in Amsterdam. And the scroll has an unusually large number of illustrations. And what makes it particularly interesting is that the artist, or perhaps the patron guiding the artist, requested that the illustrations not only include biblical scenes, the scenes found in the biblical book of Esther, but also extra-biblical material um, illustrations based on uh, rabbinic narrative known as the midrash, sort of the sort of backstory to what was going on uh, in, the, uh, in the biblical story. And the opening of the scroll contains uh, eight, eight uh, illustrations. These are all biblical. Here you see uh, Asuarius and uh, his queen Esther over here with the courtiers around them, uh, women on one side, men on the other. These are the two traders, Big Time and Teresh, uh, these are Haman hanging with his 10 sons um, on the gallows. Uh, down here, this is um, Mordechai, I'm believing, not bowing down to Haman. Over here, we have the triumph of Mordechai, where Haman is leading him through the streets. And here, this is probably Esther and Mordechai writing down uh, uh, the, uh, a letter to the Jews, where it's instructing them to uh, celebrate the holiday of Purim annually. Something comes at the end. Um, but what's interesting is that we see at the, at, at the the extra, nah, the extra biblical uh, scenes are included in the vignettes at the bottom of the scroll. So over here, we have the first, and I brought you a close-up of that. I briefly mentioned earlier, um, the story, uh, according to the, the Bible, says that Vashti was sent away. Uh, but the rabbis all say, no, no, she was executed for her disobedience. And here you actually see two women, and they're strangling her. It's, a, it's a actually a very violent image, um, right? And that's, that's right over here. Um, another example of an extra-biblical narrative is this very interesting scene of Haman. And what Haman is doing here is he's attempting to determine what month what month he should is best suited for the destruction of the Jews, and there's a very long kind of rabbinic narrative about. He goes one by one through all the months, and each month has its strength, and he can't destroy the Jewish people in this month and that month. And uh, you see him going through the months, and each one is depicted. By a sign of the zodiac, and he's shooting an arrow to determine whether this is the correct month or not. So someone gave a lot of thought as to not only um, sort of the, the biblical scenes, but even the, it was a very knowledgeable choice. It's possible that the artist was a Jewish, uh, in someone a Jewish engraver who was familiar with these scenes. It's possible that it was a Christian who was being told, here's what we'd like you to produce. And we still don't know. And. For my last scroll here, I wanted to jump back from Amsterdam to Italy uh, in the 18th century. And this is a monumental illuminated Esther scroll uh, from northern Italy uh, that was created in the mid-18th century. And I'm quite fond of this scroll because um, it just set the world record uh, for Esther scrolls sold at auction. Shout out to Leah. Leah, my colleague. Uh, I'm using your biblical name, sorry, Leah. Leah Delaney from Sotheby's. Uh, It just sold for $650,000, which was pretty cool, in the Steinhardt sale. And this is, it's a fabulously uh, elaborate uh, Esther scroll. It's one of the most beautiful scrolls ever created. It's a good 22 inches high. Let's sort of build a special thing on which to mount it there. And, um, and, and like I said, it, it went to a very nice home, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but the decorative program of this magnificent scroll features elaborate text illustrations, both uh, at the bottom uh, and at the top of the borders. And um, the Book of Esther is set, as you've seen now several times, within arcades, flanked by columns, and topped with a balustrade, which is supported uh, by flower bearing putti, and then the whole thing is surmounted with elaborate floral uh, motifs. Um, There are a series of 28 miniatures set above and below the text columns, and these sort of tell the story visually from beginning to end. However... What I want to focus on here is the cultural interchange at play in this object produced for ceremonial use. Not only has the artist incorporated aesthetics of the contemporary Rococo style, but even design elements which one might not expect to find in an object created for religious purposes have been integrated into this scroll. And here I'm speaking of a series of seated allegorical figures, which I'll show you close-ups of, on the upper border. And each is inscribed with descriptive Hebrew verses below. And um, these are modeled after those found in Cesare Ripa's Iconologia, which was a handbook of allegories, personifications, and symbols of vices and virtues, which was first published in Rome in 1593. And it was very, very popular uh, manual for artists seeking to depict uh, concepts and was republished in numerous editions. And Ripa's imagery is generally not found on objects of Jewish art, with the exception of a very few illustrated ketubot it's marriage contracts, um, created in Rome in the 18th century, and in an extraordinary group of seven Esther scrolls, also created in Italy in the second half of the 18th century. And one of these scrolls is, is the one I'm showing you here. This is perhaps the most elaborate of all of them. And this is the first first allegory up here, and that's temperance, and she's a female figure seated with a bridle and uh, a palm branch, and as the bridle restrains a horse, so does temperance, hold appetites in check, and the inscription below in this cartouche uh, says, if you find honey, eat only what you need, and that's a verse from Proverbs. Um, and it's an allegory, which is actually kind of an ironic reference, to the text below because what's going on in the text below is King Aswarius is having a feast that's going on for 180 days. So it's, it's kind of a counterpoint to the text. Um, and in fact, you can see a picture uh, of Aswarius' feast over here and um, Vashti's feast up here and then uh, Aswarius sort of speaking to his advisors about what to do because Vashti didn't come when he called. Um, this is the imagery of uh, Hope. It's a female seated figure, and uh, she's seated with an anchor next to her with some flowers in her hand. And um, she's holding a flowering branch, and the inscription reads, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And um, it's Hope that gives stability to mankind, and that's the reference to the anchor there. As an anchor provides stability to a ship. And um, this is an image of pride up here, the two peacocks. And she's seated on a throne. And the inscription reads, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And that's a reference. It's a verse from Proverbs. And it's a reference to, um, to uh, Haman, who, of course, was a little bit too arrogant uh, and sort of came to his downfall. And these allegorical images are very closely modeled after the iconologia that was published in Padua in 1618. And at the beginning of my talk, I noted the shift from codex to electronic tablet and then focused on the continuity of the scroll format within Jewish tradition and as well on the beginnings of decoration and illustrations of this scroll format. And to conclude, um, I wanted to be able to show you the ways in which recent technology affords all of us an enormous advantage in studying the history of these scrolls. And um, the scroll that I just showed you a minute ago, which set that world record, ended up in the collection of Mr. René Bruginsky, which is quite wonderful because he is a generous and philanthropic collector with arguably the best collection of decorated Esther scrolls in the world. And he funded an international exhibition of manuscripts and Esther scrolls uh, and then allowed a website to be uh, created based on the exhibition. Where all the scrolls are available and be can be ha, scrolled through from <laughs> high to tail, from beginning to end. Okay, so you get to this website budinskycollection.com, and it is actually an opening page. This is not the opening page, but you'll see scrolls on there, and um, you can hit one of the scrolls. Let's say if I hit uh, this scroll over here, right? Um, this will pop up, and you'll get information on it, and then. If you actually go over here, um, this will come up, and you can literally move that cursor and see the entire thing, and blow up details and see things that are not apparent to the naked eye. So it's it's really quite wonderful, and. I'm, I'm so very happy to announce to you, you're the first audience to hear this, that next month there's going to be a free iPad app to be able to do the same thing. So it's kind of, yeah, yeah, it's really fun. It's based on the Zurich exhibition. It's going to be bilingual in German and English, if any of you are more comfortable in German. I am not. Uh, <laughs> so progress is a wonderful thing. Um, and for those of you who are interested in seeing the uh, handwritten Esther Scroll and facsimile, feel free to come up here and take a look afterwards. And I thank you for this opportunity. I like this, we can take questions, so if there are any questions, uh, please. Is Hayden ever portrayed wearing the tri cornered hat in the hall? That's a really good question. Um, there were scrolls produced in Alsace in the 18th century, and that, if he's. yeah. Yeah, I think that in in, in French schools I've seen them that way. I can show you afterwards because I sort of downloaded that website onto my... But nothing as early as these? Nothing as early as these, no. Haman is sort of humintash and the little cookies that you sometimes see if you get to a a Jewish bakery or anywhere else around Purim are based on this idea of a tri-cornered hat of Haman. But that's a much later uh, phenomenon. I I think there's some website devoted to finding out how early it goes back and we could talk about it afterwards. (laughs) Other questions, yeah? I, I'm not
0: sure about the sacred hierarchies, but have fragments of Esther scrolls been found in any genesis?
1: Oh, thank you. Okay, so I didn't, you know, this was sort of like everything you ever want to say about Esther's scrolls in 45 minutes or less. And I, one of the things that I could have uh, put in is that um, Esther's scrolls are the only book of the Hebrew Bible not to be found in the dead scroll grouping. In other words, every other biblical book is there, except for the Esther Scrolls. So the earliest Esther Scrolls that we do have are probably from the Cairo Geniza, which dates to the 9th century. And um, I can't imagine that we don't have biblical fragments of the Book of Esther from the Cairo Geniza. What's also interesting, is, as some of you may know, is that there's this massive 7th century or 6th century gap between the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is written text, Hebrew text, and the Cairo Geniza, which is the and the ninth century, which is the first, the next time that we have uh, Hebrew written on on parchment or paper, and and between the second century Dead Sea Scrolls and the eighth 9th century, um, there is just nothing, and nobody knows why. It might be because of the upheaval, it might be because of the Jewish um, sort of. Uh, 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 move towards orality. There was a, there was this uh, fundamental interest in, in c- continuity of orality over over the written word, uh, but nobody knows. So there's this fantastic website called um, uh, Geniza.org uh, where they've digitized um, 200,000 fragments of the Cairo Geniza. And uh, we can go look online and find you an Esther scroll there. Absolutely. Or I don't know if they're scrolls. it might just be codices. That's a good question. That's a good question. Yes? Um, I might be wrong about this, but it seems like it would be difficult to print engravings or intaglio on parchment. Um, do you ever see uh, scrolls that are printed with relief borders, woodcuts, wood engravings, or is it always sort of intaglio printing? Um, I think that they're always engraving. I don't think that I've seen any with woodcut. Um, Yeah, I think that's... By the time they're printing it, I think they've sort of moved away from woodcut anyhow. you know, Most of the printing kicks off in the... Although there is some in the 17th, as I've shown you. It's mostly 18th century, and by that point, uh, I think they've shifted. I don't think I can think of any that are woodcut. Mm. It's a good question. Yes? Can you say anything about the... Zodiacal symbols um, and how they relate to anything to do with... Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, of course. The zodiac stood for each each zodiac sign stood for uh, uh, one of the months. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. But I mean in terms of the, of the story. So, yes. So what was going on is that um, Haman was trying to pick a month in which to destroy the Jewish people. So uh, what he did was he shot an arrow at a wheel that had all 12 signs of the Zodiac on it in order to pick which month would be the most propitious to destroy the Jewish people. And each Hebrew month, just in the same way that our Zodiacs are sort of... Actually, I guess our Zodiac signs go to two months, right? So you know it sort of goes in the middle of each month. But thank you for pointing out that that difference. In, In the Jewish calendar, each month has a specific sign. So the month of Adar... Uh, uh, which is the month when Purim falls out, uh, is actually the sign of Pisces. It's fish. Um, and um, and so that would be the way of them saying, here's how he's picking a month. Each month is represented by one of the signs in the zodiac. Is that, is so that what is you're it asking? The zodiac, or is it still the same zodiac that we... It's the same zodiac we use, yeah. yeah. But in other words, we use it, it goes over a two-month Right? So it goes from the middle of one month to the middle of the other. But in the Jewish calendar, it's just one Hebrew month. So if you wanted to say uh, the month of Adar, you would, you would show it as... In fact, let's, let's go back and see if we can see it quickly. It could be that they privileged that month by putting it on top. I've seen Esther scrolls. Ah, yes. Okay. So look at this. Right. This is on top here. It's the two fish. And, um, and they sort of and in many scrolls where you see the signs of the zodiac, they're not in all that many scrolls, but in the scrolls, often the, the, the two fish, which represents the month of Adar Pisces, are shown on top because that's the month in which he, he chose to kill the Jewish people. Is that? Yeah. Have, I, have I answered that correctly? Okay, fine. Yes? yes. Uh, so those two fish that you saw on the Yes. Mars. Mm-hmm. Not. Not, no, no, no. It's an interesting. No, I don't think so. I, because the Castelfranco family is a crown over two fish, and there are also two fish in other Jewish coats of arms. There's someone, God bless them, just created this amazing web document where they listed. They went to the cemeteries and throughout Italy and like listed several hundred coats of arms. So. You, well, actually, it's interesting. Um, the way that they're supposed to be read in the synagogue, and this will horrify uh, anybody who actually knows about how to handle things, is that you fold it up like a letter. It's supposed to be read as a letter. So like, if, you, if you take this, and like this is a scroll, they actually go like this to the thing. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is probably why the text is in such poor shape. You know, like it gets, they're crinkled, and then they unfold it. It's supposed to be read as an igarit, as a letter. Uh, so as you're rolling it, you'll, you'll sort of have one hand holding, holding. well, it'll be down on a desk. Uh, so one piece will be rolled up this way, and the other piece will be rolled like that, and you'll just, you know, sit there, you know. Uh, Well, actually, though, if it sits into a case, as we saw originally, it'll sit in the case, and it'll just roll out, and you'll just have to keep rolling the other end up. It's it's not a conservationally sound method. (laughs) Yes? Sorry. Sorry. Pretty close attention to it. There are still some variant readings, um, and there's been a very long paper written by, by Penkauer, which I can get you should you be interested in that, about the differences between Spanish, Italian, German, and Oriental scrolls. And like, there are 30, the, the readings tend to be an extra letter vav, a minus a letter aleph, something like that. They're not huge sentences that are different. There's sort of grammatical differences um, that have to do with the tradition of writing scrolls. So It is still, it's very regulated. Yes, I... Um, that's really interesting. I sort of know the Midrashim, um, but I don't think anybody's gone to sort of say, okay, here's what we're choosing to represent. This used to be, I must say, until, until fairly recently, um, I, I used to call it the last sort of uncharted sea in the ocean of Jewish art because there were no scribal, so few scribal colophons people had just not been able, to, and they're scattered in libraries all over the world, and none of them were digitized. And, you know, it was just completely impossible unless you went from library to library and had infinite amount of money to photograph and an amazing memory to be able to really say anything about these. It just wasn't that capacity. So that's all changing now as things are going on to the Internet, and I think we'll see more studies along the lines of what you're we are thinking about. There's not a lot of midrashic details. Some some scrolls have more than others. Um, it would be an interesting study. Yeah, Thank you. Do, do I have time for it? Okay. When well, they're printing borders, like you have the Italian Feminism uh, uh, Book with or print borders, mm-hmm. are, are they
0: then printing page size uh, pieces
1: of parchment which are then attached together, or are they printing multiples on modern size pages? That's interesting. I I would have to go and look at the scroll um, to see. My sense is I've seen the scrolls from Amsterdam and uh, seem to have sort of, we call them membranes, like one piece of parchment that's about this big, and they seem to have one block of engraving that takes the entire membrane, and then either they'll repeat that for the next three membranes and just print them that way, Um, and then sometimes what they'll have is they'll have one block, let's see if I can show you there. And then these will be separate. So you can have your, your block, right? And, and you don't have to remake that. And then you'll, you'll put these in, and you'll, you'll print those secondarily. Um, and sometimes I print them out of order, uh, you know, and so it makes it interesting. The, the one that was, I think was Morelli, that was done for a book. Right, Honestly, that was. It would not be created in that size. Right, exactly. And I think, I, I haven't examined those scrolls physically. Um, to know whether they were putting, th- I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's a good question, but I don't know the answer. Thank you all. Please feel free to examine the
0: scrolls, and we have a reception to um, thank Sharon back in um,
1: Rare Book School in the first floor of Alden Library, which you all are welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you.